this is Bill Prater, and welcome to the Business Builder Show, where we feature super successful business builders from all over the planet. And our mission is to provide you with timely, provocative, and actionable resources that inspire, promote, and accelerate your quest for business excellence. Today, we're going to talk about choosing a human-centric approach to selling, and we'll do that with, with Glenn Apollos. And now, Glenn is the co-founder, vice president, and general manager of Gap Wireless, a leading distributor for the mobile broad, broadband wireless and test and measurement equipment markets. He spent thousands of hours in the field in sales, and he's uh, worked on the phone with customers and salespeople to help create several successful companies. We'll be talking about some of those today. After entering the sales field in, uh, field in 1985 as a technical sales rep, he founded his first company called MM Wave Technology. That was in 1991. And simultaneously, he was the president of uh, Enritsu Electronics for nine years. Using his extensive knowledge and experience in the industry, he lectures groups on sales strategy, consumerism, and what motivates people at the raw emotional level. Now, Glenn lives in uh, Toronto or near Toronto in Ontario, Canada, and he enjoys hiking, skiing, and playing pickleball when the weather's decent. And you can find a lot about Glenn at glennpoles.com. Calm. My good man, it's great to have you here, sir. Thanks, Bill. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So I know you're a man of many skills. So let's zero in on today, beginning of 2022. So who do you serve now, Glenn? So we we primarily serve two two markets, and they're they're fairly specific. And as we get into it, you'll see that there's some markets we exited, and you know, in order to refine our strategy over the years. First, uh, biggest part of our business is the what we call the mobile broadband wireless market. But in layman's terms, it's basically cell phone companies. So basically T-Mobile, Verizon, you know, in Canada, Rogers, Wireless, Telus, Bell, right? And uh, yeah. we serve these, we serve these customers across North America and, and we sell them a, basically when you look up at the towers on the highway and with all those giant antennas on them and things like that, you know, you see your bars going up and down as you get closer to the towers and farther away. We, we sell all that equipment up on the tower, except for the base station, which is, which is supplied by big companies like Ericsson and Nokia, et cetera, right? And we also supply the radios and products that go inside the stadiums. So, you know, you know, any kind of large uh, venue in the U.S. or Canada where they're broadcasting, you know, hockey games, uh, football games, basketball, et cetera. There's thousands of people looking for good coverage. We provide uh, that equipment. It's called in-building in building wireless. And that's a really huge part of our business. Okay, so let me, let me kind of go to my second question and we'll yeah. flip back to the other market. So all these people uh, have a problem that you solve. So what is that problem in that industry? So we like to say, you know, sort of we, we, we make wireless work. And so we're the wires behind the wireless. 
And, and so we really provide the, the, the products, the tools, the measurement capabilities for the carriers to deliver quality signal to their customers, right? The only part of it they don't really offer, again, is the base station, oh, which is okay. which is a global uh, global product. Yeah, I love that company. wires behind the wireless. It's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. you've got another market you want to tell us about. And and then the other part, it's a smaller but still significant portion, is what is called electronic test and measuring instruments. And so there's many large companies. The first company that entered that market in the third, 1930s was Hewlett-Packard, which became Agilent Technologies, which is now called Keysight Technologies. And they sell all kinds of measuring instruments that engineers use to do their jobs. So it could be, a, it could be engineering school, you know, any kind of university with a lab. It could be a government lab, military. You know, the FCC uses these instruments to measure electronic signals. And any kind of manufacturer, you know, Cisco, Avaya, anyone building electronics, Honeywell, people that build electronic things have to measure the signals with electronic instruments. And, and we sell those instruments. No, we sell, yeah, we're a distributor. So- so, so to kind of help us kind of understand, you know, pick one of those markets and maybe a case study that if you could explain kind of soup to nuts, here's a typical customer, here's uh, their problem, here's how they find us, this is what we do, here's the result at the end. Walk so, us through one of those stories. Yeah. And uh, oh, sorry, I forgot to turn that ringer off. I'm sorry about that. I'm, uh, I didn't, one of my, hear, I didn't one, hear it. One of my philosophies at work is I'm the, and it's, and I actually talk about it in my book as well. Is I'm the failover for any phone calls at my company. So if if it goes around the voicemail circle and they don't get answers, they hit zero zero zero. It comes straight to me, and I pick <laughs> it up. And later I figure out who didn't answer the phone, and I go talk to them. Right. But the one of the one of the really uh, well defined cases for our customer segments and our what we sell sort of in the measuring instruments would be the technicians that are the drive test teams that work for the carriers. So all the carriers employ these, these guys, it's usually one or one or two guys in a truck. We call it, you know, two bobs in a truck and they buy these measuring instruments from us called spectrum analyzers. And their job is to drive around the cities. And in most days they're characterizing the quality of their network. So, but a lot of times people are calling and complaining, I'm dropping calls, I'm dropping calls or they're finding cell sites are, are turning up and down uh, automatically when they, when they shouldn't be, they should just be turned on. And so they drive around with our instruments. We've sell them an antenna, a tripod, a holder, all the cables and this measuring instrument called a spectrum analyzer. And they literally drive around in circles, just like you'd see in the old war movies, triangulating, you know, where these interferers are coming from. And then if you're the lucky person, you'll get a knock on your door from, you know, from a carrier saying, you know, do you have a, you know, a European cordless phone operating in your house? And they're like, how do you know that? Right. And that particular kind of phone, the decked phone from Europe interferes with the U.S. cellular network and it causes the cell signal, it causes the signal to drop and, and they basically, they basically lose connectivity and all those people talking on those channels are, are, are cut off instantly. And so they literally drive around in circles, finding the person and then say, thank you very much. But we own that spectrum. You have to, you have to go buy a North American phone. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And so that's a perfect use case of using the measuring instrument. We, and again, all the other pieces and parts in the system that they use, you know, the antenna that they're holding and they have all different kinds, you know, mounted on the truck. And then they have handheld antennas that when they get out, they have to walk around. And former business that we had was we, we even had the same system mounted on drones where they could rise up and down outside of apartment buildings and things like that. 
but we, we backed away from that market because it was, it was a lot of maintenance in, in those products and it was sort of more trouble than it was worth, but, but it was a interesting adaptation of the, of the same instruments on the ground, moving them up into the sky. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's one of the, uh, a really good use case. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good one. That's fascinating too, because I never even imagined that sort of thing. I, I guess naively, I would think. Oh, it's all kind of static. It exists. It's physical. It's going to be fine. Maybe weather. I mean, I thought, well, maybe weather, but I love yeah. that story about the, yeah. the little instrument and so forth. Yeah. So Glenn, look, you're in a market with lots and lots and lots of players, uh, big, like and you mentioned several big brands and so yeah. forth and customers are big and picky and so forth. So what differentiates your business from all the competition out there? What, what's right. So, so we're, we classify ourselves as a distributor. So what we do is we buy products from manufacturers. We don't make any products, right? We might bundle products together, but that would be the extent of it. And we, we, we represent these products from around the world in our, in our territories. And it varies. It could be, you know, parts of Canada, all of Canada, all of, all of North America or parts of the U S it varies the territory, but we're always doing the exact same thing. And that is we're a technical value added representative for them. And so the difference is that there's, there's large distributors, you know, in North America. And I mean, to the layman, I mean, if you think of like a Costco or, you know, a big box store, they have lots of brands and lots of products, but you know, it's not like they have, they don't have design, engineers standing on by waiting to demonstrate the, you know, everything to you. And, and right. so what, what we do is we help these companies that don't have a sales force in, in the market to go and build demand for the products. We're not just a distributor where they say, I need this part number and this partner and this part number, you know, what's the delivery. We're actually generating the demand for the product. So we will, we're, so we're at the cutting edge of, of that. And so products that we signed up five years ago and started working on, we're just getting orders from our large customers today. Wow. We had, to, we had to get interest from them. We had to generate trials. We had to do system trials. It had to be approved and then we had to win and then the financial proposals and the RFP and we had to win it all. And now we're enjoying the fruits of it. And we do that over and over again. And uh, a simple example, just to, you know, simplify it for everyone is when you look up at a tower, you see the giant base station antennas. We, we do sell those in, in our territory and there's many manufacturers of antennas. And so the companies we represent, we work with engineers at the carriers. We, when we try to schedule trials for the new antennas, better beams, you know, you know, better signal ha handling, you know, always bigger, faster, wider, deeper, and 20% cheaper, right? That's what we always say. And, um, and when it comes to antennas, it needs to be smaller too, because the, they want to cram more on the tower, right? And the, and so we'll, we'll establish a dialogue with the engineers and we'll get them, convince them to have a trial, you know, and they'll pick a site. And they'll put our antennas up for a few months and they'll trial them. And hopefully when they go and they want to deploy that new technology that requires that kind of antenna, they'll select ours. And we'll be locked in for three years and, and we'll sell them antennas, lots and lots of them for a long time. And then we have to, the fight begins again, over and over again. And the companies we represent don't have a large enough footprint to have staff in every country. And so they hire companies like us to not only distribute the products, but also to represent them with our, our sales engineers that we have on staff. Yeah, beautiful story, beautiful story. Okay, I think we've got a good understanding of, of who you sell to, 
the services you have, your differentiation vis-a-vis -vis your competitors. So what I'd like to do now, Glenn, with your permission, I'd like to yeah. have you go back and, you know, back to, if you will, 1991. And when you decided I'm going to jump into this sure. crazy business world and carve my own niche out, what I'd like to hear from you is, I mean, how, why, what got you started? You know, what's, what were some of the key milestones as you built your businesses? I know that you've sold a couple along the way, yeah. you know, was that a, was that kind of an end or sort of a refreshment kind of walk us through that, pretend like we're, we're students in the classroom and we'd like to know how in the world can we replicate what you've done, Glenn? Well, there's lots of parts in there you might all want to replicate. <laughs> okay, good. good. So I'll ask you about some of those as well. Yeah. Yes. I'll work yes. some of those in, but I'll, I'll give you a warning not to repeat those ones. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. uh, don't do this. Here's yeah, why. Don't do that. Right, exactly. Lesson, have to do it. So, yeah. So prior to 85, I worked for the, the, the Canadian federal government in the environment, environment Canada, just like the National Weather Service. And I was hired out of electronic school to work on weather stations up in the Arctic as a combination electronic technician, weather technician. They wanted to save money. And so they hired these LTECs, electronic technicians from college, trained them in weather and shipped them off to the Northern Arctic uh, to live in isolation. I lasted a year and then I managed to get out of the Arctic and down to head office. And it wasn't very, I wasn't there very long in their electronics department, their QA department, when the, the boss came to me and said, you're in the wrong uh, job. Like you should be in sales. And they told me this one rule that he had, he said, money flows out of the end of a pen, not out of a toolbox. Right. You know, and I mean, some, some, some trades people might argue that point and that's fine. I mean, a lot of guys do very well, but, but he, he was making a point with me. Right. And, and I, so I, I made the leap into sales and I worked for a company from 85 to 91. And in that time, there was this newfangled device that came out that everyone knew would never, would never survive called the cell phone, right? And, uh, you know, in the mid 80s, we all started getting phones. And uh, the phone number I have today is the same phone number I got in 1986 when I got my first cell phone, which is very cool. But the, um, I, I was really, you know, that company that I worked for sold more things than wireless into the cellular business. And I suggested to them that they should split the company into two and create a wireless focused company. And then the general purpose they could keep. And I would own part of the wireless company and they get to own part of it. And of course it was risk-free for me. Cause I mean, they would probably fund it and <clears throat> I would get a wage and all that. And the president said, you know, do up a plan for me and then bring it to me. And then I'll explain to you why it's probably not going to work. Right. Okay. And I think he just wanted status quo, right? So I went home sure. and I, I wrote my resignation. And the next day I came and I delivered my plan, which was I resigned. And uh, he was a little shocked. And I kind of, you know, I had taken a leap of faith. I was convinced, you know, that the underlying technology and cellular was going to be world changing. So much so that I named my company MM Wave Technologies. And if you, if, you know, I don't want to get geeky on the audience, but I mean, only today are we really starting to uh, broach into the MM wave frequencies, the higher, higher frequencies with cell phone technology, which allows these crazy download speeds, you know, and uh, short distance, high capacity. And so, you know, 30 years ago, the word, well, word that we're using today ubiquitously in wireless was the name of my company, right? So I, I could see what was coming, right? And and so I worked with a couple other guys. We joined, we had a guy in Ottawa, a guy in Montreal, myself. Later, the, the Quebec guy, he sold off and my brother bought in. 
And we ran that company for 15 years. And we basically are doing the same thing that I'm doing at Gap Wireless. And so one would ask themselves why, you know, why you're not doing it in the old company. So 13 and a half years in, a public company came to us. And to make a long story short, they, they bought our company and we all received very, very large, you know, payout for, for the business. And it was, you know, mid eight figure sale. And, but we got it all in the form of shares, except for a small amount of cash each. Right. And I mean, shares in the public company, in the public company. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And I was, you know, mid, mid forties, I guess at the time. Well, the other part about starting MM Wave in 1991 was I wanted to do it before I turned uh, 30. That was like this goal. And, and I did it when I was 29 and a half. So I was quite happy about that. But some years later, so the public company bought us and we were not, we were really good salespeople and we ran a really good business and it was super profitable. And that's where our savvy ended. And these public market guys came in and chewed us up and spit us out like uh, nobody's business. I mean, it's embarrassing to even tell the story. They're like, you know, how could you be so foolish? And so these are the parts you don't want to repeat. So make sure you get way more cash up front than shares. Right. And so when we, when we, when we sold, I mean, I was a multimillionaire and, but because I wasn't able to spend it, I was an insider. I could only sell 1% every 90 days. I didn't feel like a multi multi-millionaire. I just felt like the same guy doing the same thing, except the new owners had drained our line of credit, stretching all of our vendors. And in 18 months, they bankrupted our division, our company, not the public company, but, and the shares had gone from a dollar to like 0.4 of a cent. And, and later that guy w- went on to do these, these techniques a few more times. And on the last one, he ended up getting arrested by the RCMP and uh, charged with fraud. And he didn't get off quite so lightly the, 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 that time. And uh, he's actually in prison serving a fraud charge. So wow, I, I was then faced with the choice of going from this multimillionaire status to, you know, a popper or what have you. I mean, obviously I wasn't broke, but I mean, and I had to either write a resume or start over and literally within a week, I, you know, the story as I like to tell it is I started with the, the, the letters of my, in my name, G and P, and then I went out and I bought a vowel and the first one was a, so I took G and P put an A in the middle, got gap gap wireless. Okay. We're in business. And I approached one of my, one of my employees from Quebec and, and we approached one of our vendors and we, we got together and we created gap wireless and we erased all of the bad mistakes we had learned in the old company. And we did it the way, exactly the way we wanted over the years. And on February 4th of this year, we were acquired by, you know, us private equity. It was a very healthy exit for us. And they've retained us for a number of years to stay on and, and run the business and help grow their this time cash instead cash. of stock. Cause they didn't have any stock. Okay. Perfect. No stock. Yeah. I love the awesome. story, Glenn. Yeah. So it, yeah. And so, so I'll be doing the same thing for quite, quite some time. And in the middle of all that, I, you know, starting in COVID March of 2020 is when I wrote the book, which was sort of published uh, right around the yeah, same time. So once week. you grab the book and bring it up so we can yeah. all see the book. There. Okay. Yeah. So the, the book is called ne- Never Sit in the Lobby, 57 Winning Sales Factors to Grow a Business and Build a Career Selling. And, and so these are all the rules I wrote down. So back to, back to the book for a second. Yep. Back at, we're going to have a prop. So that's available on, in, in books. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yep. Anywhere, anywhere popular books are sold. It's also an audio book, an ebook, you know, all, all popular uh, ways and techniques that you. Okay. So we got 57. So just like Heinz, huh? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, 
the the editor came up helped me come up with that title that wasn't the title i had but it's basically 57 rules some of the things i did wrong and some of the things i did right and so and the book coincidentally it came out the same week that the the final ink was uh, signed on the on the deal to to sell the business to private equity so it was kind of a busy week and and interesting so I'm back to doing my same old job. I have the same job, same title, you know, and we're now, you know, figuring out how we'll fit into the bigger entity and what have you over the, over the coming year and what have you, but, but pretty much it's sort of status quo. And, and now we have a big company behind us and yeah. And so it's been, it's been a really rewarding experience. You still have some equity left in the company. Yeah. Okay. As, big, as in our, myself and my business partner, we were asked to roll in. And, and we did, we did roll in a healthy portion to, you know, into the, into the, the private equity firm. So. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, okay. So what were the, uh, maybe the top three milestones that uh, overall through the two businesses milestones that were, you told us about, I, I don't know how in the world you could have figured out a guy was a fraudster, but. So we've got that one squared away, but give us two or three other major milestones, Glenn, and particularly tell us the lessons you learned from each of them. You've told us this one about cash is king, stock yeah. is nice, but you can't always count on the next company doing what you want to have it do. So no, exactly. Major yeah, milestones. So that was a major milestone. One of the ones that was the, the top, like the funny thing about what happened with the, with the, you know, the sale of the business the first time and to, you know, and I, and sorry, just to go back on it. Like we did look into his past. He had actually a lot of successful things under his belt and part of the companies that they owned were throwing off tons of cash as well. We just didn't understand all the mistakes that were hidden under the covers and they were using that other company and our company to pay for those mistakes. And I mean, you know, I'm not sure what we should have done, but, but we didn't. And at face value, we thought we were getting the greatest deal in the world. And they, 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 there was a bunch of cell phone stores that they owned across Canada, which were super profitable. So, you know, but lesson learned. One of the, the, one of the other lessons I learned, and I, I touch on this in the book as well, and you know, the, and I, I, I labeled them all called factors and things like that. And so basically the factor, like one is called the Mark Quigley factor, right? And, you know, I, I can go into them later if there's time, but there, there are lessons I learned about people that demonstrated them, either good things or bad things. Right. And so the, in 2019, we, we had to make some decisions and, you know, I'll explain what I did and, and how we got there. And it was much tougher than losing my fortune in, in the first business, which will be obvious to use soon, but it was the, the best thing I could ever do. So we had gotten into in a few years before that. So 2019 minus probably 2015, my partner and I were both sort of like technique, tech, technology geeks, you know, like anything cool technology, we, you know, we want to play with it. Right. And the, I'm not a super like, as I like to call them propeller head in terms of understanding. I have enough to sell anything to anyone technically, but, but I'm not, I'm not the doctor of PhD that, that designed it. Right. And so we got involved with drones, right? So unmanned aerial air, unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs or drones, they're very popular, uh, popular brand that you'll see is DGI, you know, they're sold in Best Buy now and other, you know, uh, we were selling industrial uh, drones and we created this new division because we, we loved it so much. We wanted to play with them. And then we said, Hey, let's start a division selling drones. So we started doing that. We started taking on products from, from these big suppliers. Uh, most of them are in China. And, um, 
we, you know, and what the, the problem with that, the long and the short of that was we would order a container load of drones to come over and before the boat, the boat would leave, you know, Shanghai before it hit the dock in, you know, in Toronto or in Vancouver, the stuff was already a new model was already being introduced on the other side. And so we were constantly dealing with, uh, and there was no stock rotation or anything like that with China, right? Once it leaves the port, it's yours, you own it forever, right? And so we just couldn't keep up and it was really tough. And then the second part of the story is that we'd also gone into not only selling the antennas up on the towers and the cable and everything, but we'd started a secondary division climbing the towers and putting the antennas up for the carriers. So we were both installing and selling the products, right? Which sounds like, you know, not, not much different than someone does HVAC, you know, they'll sell you an air conditioner and they will install it, right? Or a plumber, you know, sell you a water softener and they will install it. It seems... But it's quite different in this sense because a lot of the people doing that work were our customers. We were selling those people, the kinds of products in smaller degrees than we were selling to the carriers. But, and then they would bump into us at the tower and they'd say, wait a minute, you're like cutting my grass, right? Or less, less friendly ways of saying you're competing with me, right? You know, you're mowing my grass, you're cutting my grass, whatever. That's one of the ways. But basically, you know, I'm buying antennas from you and then I'm going across the road and you're competing with me sell to install the antennas you know at, at one of the carriers right and so they would want to so we realized we'd made a bit of a mistake we ended up changing the name hiring new staff and trying to separate it but but a lot of memories die hard and and so we to make a long story short although it's been dragging on here i'm sorry but excellent thank you the um we were losing money with the drone division and we were losing money with the, with the service division significantly. And in 2019, it all came together like a snowball that had rolled down a hill and it was a significant amount of money. So much so that it had kind of put a damper on a private equity investment that had come right in the middle of it all. And they wanted to give a three-year history, you know, the three times average EBITDA multiplier, the whole nine yards. And of course, 2019 was just decimating the whole thing, right? And we thought, oh, we have to climb our way out of this. And the final little piece to the puzzle was we'd also, without a lot of research and we'd hired a lot of salespeople in, uh, throughout the United States without a lot of due diligence, right? Like we thought we need a guy in Texas, need a guy in Seattle. We had a lady in, in Florida, someone in the Northeast, someone in Boston, et cetera. And we were hiring them faster than we should. And, and in the end, they, we weren't really hiring quality people. It wasn't like the, the idea was bad. It was just, we'd hired people that had been cast off or, laid off for reasons or, you know, and they weren't really performers and we'd kind of accumulated because we were, we put too much, we didn't put enough time into it. We rushed it. Right. And in 2019, one day I came to work in October and I was talking with our finance director and he was like, finally, you know, the, really the, the black and the white and the red of it all had been, was un, unmistakable. And, you know, you have this epiphany moment, right? Where you go from being, it's okay, it's, we're going to be okay, this thing's okay to, wow, we really screwed up and we have to do something different. And on that moment, I called my business partner and I said, we're closing the US, we're getting rid of the drone division and we're selling the service division. And he's like, oh, okay, well, we're talking about, it. he's like, when are we doing? It? I go, this morning, we're going to make the calls today. We're firing everyone today, right? And we went from 80 people to 29 people in one day. And uh, we, we had already known of a company that we could move the service division. So, so a great number of the people were in the service division and they, they didn't lose their jobs. They went to this other company, but we basically gave them the company. So 
And we laid off a few in the drone division and six or seven people in the United States all in one day. And it was boom, you know, like Black Thursday, right? And wow. we, and my partner said to me, he said like, one, like I, I did most of it. And my partner's like, I never would have done it. And he goes, and I never even could have made the decision. So thank you for doing it. Because our, we turned the company around like so astronomically that it's, it's, it's mind-boggling what happened between 2019 and 2020, even in the middle of COVID. We turned it around so much so, and then through 2021, and then, of course, we were able to sell the company, even with posting this huge loss in 2019. We had done so well in 2020 and 2021 that they, over, they, just, they just disregarded it as a restructuring and said, hey, you made all the right decisions. You did all the right things. And it was the toughest, toughest decision I'd have to make, but the best thing that I'd ever done, right? Yeah, and, sounds like uh, for all involved, actually. Yeah, yeah. And it's worked out, worked out really well. And um, so the other, what's coming to my mind just right off the top of my head is that the most of the other mistakes that I've often made were not taking enough time with the people that we get involved with at the, you know, as partners, you know, you know, not, not so much vendors and customers because, but, but mostly employees and staff, uh, especially at the senior level, not enough due diligence. You know, we had a lot of misfirings and, you know, I'm looking back on them, you know, I realized at the time is like, you know, you're, you're running different parts of the business you know, and sometimes you just cut a corner, right? Like it's an intellectual corner. It's kind of like, okay, well, I have a bit of a bad feeling, but I'm kind of feel lazy at the moment because I've got that customer breathing down my neck and I need to fly to Dallas and I guess they're okay. And, you know, and then of course, a little while in, you know, you're like, did I, what did I do? And then you're like, okay, let's give them six months. And, you know, and then you're six months in and before you know it, you're a year in, right? And, then you have to backtrack and you've lost a year. You've hired the wrong person. You have to pro give them proper severance because of the, your own mistakes, right? You have to start over and then you have to explain to everybody at the water cooler, as I like to say, yeah. why you were so stupid, right? And, and really that's been, that's been the, the toughest thing for me to come to grips with is constantly disciplining myself to take the time to hire the best people. The people we have now are so awesome and you know, as I like to say, like when, when you're like a senior manager, if you've really done your job well, you shouldn't really have to do anything, right? Because you've hired all the best people and your job is just to make sure that whatever problems they bring to you, you get out of the way for them and they do everything else, right? And so we have some really good people, right? And then just a little bonus mistake uh, that I made, which is kind of not really business related, but I would be remiss in not sharing it is, is that, you know, it's been pretty, pretty successful run despite the, the hiccup in 2019. We've had a really good profitable run throughout 2007 to our 15th anniversary last, last February. And the, the one thing that I also neglected was my, um, my health. Right. And I didn't eat right. You know, I actually don't have any trouble sleeping, but basically not eating right. Right. And I don't, I don't drink or anything like that. So my problems are typically related to food and food intake, but I realized over the years, how much of a toll it's taken on me and my stamina and business. And, you know, if some people ask me, if you could do it all over again, what, what would you do? And I'd say, yeah, I wouldn't have gotten fat. Right. And the, you know, and I'm battling right now to get back down to a more, a more manageable weight. I'm not super overweight at the moment, but, but my doctor would say I am. And, but it's been a, it's been a struggle and it's, it's been through, 
again, where you don't put the right, uh, all the right pieces together, you know, you ignore some things, right? So you have massively stressful days and then you allow yourself to go home and overeat as your compensation for it. So I'd, I'd always counsel everyone to make sure you put your health first and all aspects of it, right? And thank you very much for sharing that. So Glenn, what's holding, what's holding you back now? What's, uh, what's your challenge for 2022? So right now, the challenges, they're pretty easy to identify. So the, the most glaring one is the global supply chain upset due to COVID and COVID-related situations. So it, it, it stretches all the way from copper, steel, nickel pricing. You know, that's causing price impacts of an unprecedented nature. We have contracts with three years with, with uh, wireless carriers that say like, this is my price for three years or you're paying to get it to me. Sucks being you if the price changes, you know? And over the years, we've had to live with that day in and day out. We're now going to these customers and saying, I'm sorry, but the price of copper is this, the price of nickel, this, that, the freight. And they're without any questions changing their prices because they have 80 other suppliers standing in the lobby, right? Because of my book, Never Sit in the Lobby. Everyone's standing, waiting their turn. But to say, it, although it's not a force majeure, which is like an act of God, it's as close to force majeure as you can get yeah. because it's just unprecedented. And, and the biggest problem is like goods that we would take orders from universities for a student lab, you know, 120 oscilloscopes, power supplies, voltmeters and things for the students. Normally they'd order them in June for a September class, right? We're getting 26 uh, to 40 week delivery now on these kinds wow. of products. Um, some of the, some of the cable and uh, products, either copper cable or fiber optic cable, some of the types of cable, they're quoting 18 months delivery. And so it's changing the entire planning outlook for, for our carrier customers because they program in the, real, the dates they've expected into their, their systems and they know exactly when to order everything so every site gets billed on the right day. And now they're saying like, you're missing every date. And so the supply chain is, it's a huge, huge problem. Both the price is changing, un, uh, unscheduled price changes and incredible delays with the, uh, with the transportation. Containers out of the Far East, Air freight has gone through the, you know, some people know, like based on today, you know, we're in April when we're doing the recording, Shanghai is closed because of COVID. All of our stuff is stuck at the, at the dock. And a lot of our products are built in, in Asia and, and it all comes by boat and it's just literally stuck there. And wow. so, and then the second, second problem is that the unprecedented, the high amount of employment that's going on in North America I mean, at literally everyone good that has a job, everyone good has a job is what I'm trying to say. And so finding staff is like massively, it's so difficult. And, and it's, it's a double whammy because there's a very high amount of employment. But in addition to that, there's also sort of unprecedented growth and profitability going on in companies. So, so people that would be normally just doing their normal, normal, they're now getting their normal, they're 2Xing their quota, for instance, salespeople, you know, they're getting every bonus, they're getting the president's trip, you know, they're sending everybody to Cancun for a week with the wife or because they hit the, you know, and the guys are saying, okay, well, I, you know, I 3X my quota, I doubled my salary, I got a 50K bonus. I mean, that's my starting point. When can I start, right? right. And, and of course, right. Right. they don't do, they hadn't done that for me. <laughs> and I'm like, but they want me to prepay all of that performance and set that as the baseline, right? 
And so you try to explain to them like, well, when your sales drop, when the, when they normalize your compensation, I mean, your numbers are going to come back to normal. Right. But, but we're right in the mic in the middle of it. So it's a very difficult conversation. And most yeah, people are just saying, well, I'll stay it. where I am because I'm making more than I've ever made. And, and so, yeah. And so those are the two biggest things that, um, that I'm struggling with right now because we are growing. So we need good people, but we're really struggling to find them. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that as well. So uh, tell us, uh, Glenn, how would our listeners uh, get a hold of you? Listeners being yeah. uh, potential customers, potential employees, vendors, how would all those various stakeholders get a hold of you? So the, uh, at, for my, at my work, my, I'm on LinkedIn and everything. My name is Glenn Poulos and my email is glenn.poulos at gapwireless.com. And that's my work email. And I have a website for my book and my, you know, the publishing of my book and what have you. And that website, www.glenpoulos.com. And you can, there's a contact me link on there. And so depending upon which, which reason they're reaching out, either one of those will work. Okay. Beautiful. So I've asked you several questions specifically. I asked you seven as I remember, but so I may have not asked you a question though, that you were kind of waiting for. And so if so, what's that un asked question and the answer to that glenn i'm trying to think of a crack a joke and the what is the unanswered question but well i guess it would be why'd you write a book what what's in the book that would make it any difference like why should anyone even buy your book like there's so many sales oh, books good. out there well defined right and so taking it from a more selfish personal point of view those are the questions i'd probably want you to be asking me and so the answer to that would is... be so why did i write a book because I started writing down the rules back in the eighties in a book. I still have the same book that I started writing them down in and I started naming them after people. And as, as a situation arose throughout the years, I would recite the, the rule, you know, don't do this for this reason, do this for that reason or whatever. And then, you know, a few related companies reached out to me and said, oh, you know, we heard you telling some of your stories. Can you come and speak to our sales team? So, you know, did some public speaking, you know, and eventually people would say, oh, you should write a book, write a book. And of course, you know, all those years back, I, I actually gave it a shot, but I didn't really get very far in. And, and then when COVID came along, you know, it was kind of, kind of having an existential crisis of, you know, varying degrees as we all were, you know, kind of stuck at home at nights and on weekends and stuff. And I thought, you know what, like, this would be a great, a great thing after the after, right? After the next, you know, to, to have a book and, you know, maybe, maybe be able to travel a bit and speak about it and what have you and share these rules once and for all. So I buckled down in March of 2020 and started writing. And, um, and so, and, and I, I decided that I was going to write only on the week, Saturday and Sunday, and I'd write 2000 words, you know, per weekend. And I was able to stick to that. And as I like to say, I got to 75,000 words and figured that was enough. And then when the editor got through with it and removed the F word, you know, removed my swearing, I was back at 71,000 words, <laughs> but, uh, but I still had enough to make a book, right? <laughs> and they're like, you get three F words in the book and that's it maximum, right? And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll clean it up for public consumption, right? And so, yeah, so that was, that was why I'd written because people were sort of goading me on and it became a kind of a, can I do it? Will I do it? Should I do it? And so I decided that I would finally do it. And, you know, why would they read it? So the one difference is that, you know, I'm kind of a worker bee, just like everybody else, right? Like I literally get up every day and I come to work 
at Gap Wireless, right? And I always have for 15 years. And throughout COVID, we were a you know essential service, right? The, we had letters from all of our from our big customers saying you can't close, and so I had to send all my staff home. But we had some warehouse guys here, myself, and then one admin per day would on a rotating schedule would come into the office and and be myself one admin person and then some warehouse people right and everybody else was remoted just just like everyone else right and they're and they're like well you know why do you need the one other admin and the joke was always like well what if i fell and couldn't get up right i need someone there to find me and uh they're like what about the warehouse i go those guys never come to check on me right oh, so oh. so yeah so one a day so now we're now we're back kind of 50 50 in our particular i'm in the ontario location and so 50 to 60 percent back back at work and 20 sort of i guess 20 to 40 percent at home and yeah and so why should they buy the book so because i'm not just a like a like an academic on, on selling, like these are like street learn things that I do every day. Like when I actually go to the lobby, I don't sit in the lobby. Right. And you know, people ask, why is it called never sit in the lobby? Why do you never sit in the lobby? And do they mean don't sit in the lobby, meaning don't be in the lobby, sit in your car. And I'm like, no, I mean, stand in the lobby, like waiting at attention, waiting for your customer. Don't be on your cell phone. Don't be looking around. Just be attentive and waiting for that door to open and your client to walk through the door to shake their hand. And you're the only thing, they're the only thing on your mind. And then I have a whole series of other rules that I, that I engage in. Right. And so you're going to learn all sorts of tips that are like, oh, that's like common sense. Right. I'm like, okay, well, why were you doing it then? (laughs) Right. And another, another, you know, another great example that after never sit in the lobby, just to to give context to the common sense of it all is that one of the chapters is called never forget a face. And that's where I teach the guys um, and gals, of course, to when they, when they're meeting, you know, and they're being introduced to people, you know, they're, they're meeting someone say named Bob, right. And you say, hi, Bob. And then in your mind, you say, Bob, 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 you know, under your breath, of course. Right. And then you take their image of their face and you kind of sort of blend it all into your mind. You take a split second and really focus on it. Then when you get to your car, you enter those names, you know, into, uh, into your, your, you know, your phone or your, your laptop, your iPad, whatever technology you're using, it doesn't matter. And the story I give is how I used to do it on like call book back in, in the eighties. Right. It's all the same thing. Then when I go back the next time, before I go in every customer, before I go and stand in the lobby, I go through my book, my, my phone, my iPad, whatever, and I associate the face to the name, right? I go, Bob, oh, right, yeah, Bob, I remember that guy. Bob was the old guy, you know, Jack's the heavyset dude, you know, Sally's that scary woman from purchasing or whatever, you know, something like that, right? And I, I would mentally picture it so it was right here at the front of my brain because my brain's really, really good, and, but it's way back. And the time to get from the back of my brain to the front of my brain the person's already walked past me, right? So when I'm walking by them, because one of my third rules always ask for a mini tour, right? Which basically means take me to your lab, show me your new production facility. Right. You're walking through the hall and you're like, hey, Bob, Jack, Sally, Joe. And they're like, who's that guy? And then, you know, and then the guy you're with is like, holy shit, this guy knows everybody. And, you know, and it's a simple thing, but I learned it in the hard way when those people were walking by me and a lot of them remembered me because I'm the unique thing, right? I was the, oh, I'm that guy selling instruments or whatever. And there's, hey, Glenn. And I'm like, hey, 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 
and it's really hard, right? You know, like probably at pickleball, you meet these people, they tell you their name the next week, you forget who they are, right? Sure. I don't because I do practice something similar, but you're right. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. So some of the, these are some, you know, there's, there's some really, really good tips in there. There's some, some disaster stories about hiring the wrong people, mistakes I made, part things I, I glossed over. So that, you know, and it's really an easy and fast read. You know, it's not uh, textbook like in any way. It's very conversational. Just the way I'm speaking to you now is the way the book comes out. And it's all about stories, right? And, you know, and I try to c- capture them with a lesson built inside of a story. And, and these stories are all true. And the only thing is that I changed the names to protect the uninnocent. And, uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing all that. That's yeah. fantastic. That's a book we should be acquiring soon. Yeah. Right on. So thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Bill. Hey, look, everybody, in closing, let's focus on a single fact. And that is that our businesses do not become extraordinary in a single moment. It's instead... They get there as a result of the owner first learning and then applying a proven combination of having the right mindset of a dedication to a system of management and number three, leveraging high performance teams. So thanks for listening, Glenn. Once again, thanks for sharing your beautiful time with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Pleasure to be here.